HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. This week, Team HRN is at Charleston Wine and Food for the fifth year in a row. So, on this week's Meet and 3, we bring you some of our favorite sound bites from last year. The hospitality here yes. and the camaraderie is really wonderful. Yes. That's what's struck Everybody me. smiles. So, imagine if you mix dirt with sand. Yes. You've got our earth. Yes. That sounds like that would be really poor. Really poor, conditions. right? <laughs> you know, we can talk all we want about a good story, but a good story is useless if the wine isn't great. It's highly Instagrammable. It looks so gory. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today I'm speaking with Zachary D'Angelo, founder and CEO of Rodeo CPG. He is a career entrepreneur who, after eight years of building his own brands, decided to take his experience and resources and create Rodeo, a consultancy that includes an operations team and a sales team that can work independently or as one fully integrated unit. Zach, I think, what's the movie where you had me at Hello, Jerry <laughs> Maguire, I guess? I that's the one, you yeah. had me at Dear UNFI. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm like... I came to that party late, I think. I'm sure, I think you're probably on Twitter, too. I just don't do Twitter. I'm not. You're I'm not? not? I never did it. Um, yeah. I feel like you would be one of those, like, Twitter, like, people that people follow, well, you know? that's generous. I, yeah. I like the pithiness of it, but yeah. I just couldn't yeah. stay on top of it, so... Um, so for anybody listening, I highly recommend you go to Zachary's... LinkedIn page. There are a couple of articles that he's written. One of them is called Dear UNFI. The other is like CPG's like Apocalypse Which. or something like that. Um, one's about valuations. And a lot of what you say, I feel like I reiterate in here a lot. Um, 
And so I, when we met at the UNFI show in Vegas, I was a little, it was like meeting a celebrity kind of. So that was very <laughs> fun for you me. You and my mother are the right. only ones that may think that. I could trip over George Clooney. <laughs> I literally <laughs> wouldn't, or like Bradley Cooper or whatever. But someone who's written a really good thing that like speaks my language, I get a little bit, you know, excited. So I'm happy to have you on the show today. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Um, we're going to do a little background just so people know where you're from and like sure. what you were like. But basically, where'd you grow up? Uh, born in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, oddly, uh, <laughs> but moved to uh, the Northeast outside of Boston when I was around 10. Okay. Um, lived there, went to school in Virginia, then moved straight to New York. And were you, um, did you have siblings? I have an older brother who lives in uh, Jersey City, actually. And were you um, an entrepreneurial kid? Were you always having little businesses? Were you, did you like to have a paper route, that kind of guy? Or were you yep. selling things to people? I may have been to too people? lazy for a paper route. Right. <laughs> uh, but I was, uh, the, the concept of entrepreneurship was always Interesting. fascinating to me. Yeah. So as, as a two-year-old, you know, I was going to be a businessman, right. whatever With whatever your briefcase, were you like walking around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's really cute. Yeah. Um, did you sell anything in lower school to anybody? Yeah, there was, <laughs> there was a disgusting candy called like Belchers or something. Uh-huh. It was like you, you bit into it and it like oozed Threw up in your a mouth? disgusting yeah. juice. I sold, I remember going to awesome. Costco and selling those. Not Gushers? Not Gushers. Okay. No, Gushers no, no. were good. I thought. Yeah, no, those were yeah. delicious. These were... Were they purposely gross? Yeah, yeah, I think I so. I see. Okay. I don't know why that appealed to me, right. but that was <laughs> the thing that I bought in bulk yes. and then sold in the... Every, and got in trouble for it. Every one of us has that story. Yep. It's so funny. Um, and then, so you went to school. Did you? Were you a business major? I was in Spanish. Okay. Yeah. And did you start work immediately after college or did you go and get another degree? No, I went right away, like the next week, to a, um, what was it? It was an internship at uh, Hill Holiday, which was an ad agency. Uh-huh. Um, my brother was, and is, in advertising, so I thought for a hot minute that would there's be... there's a correlation. Yeah, yeah, right. for sure. Just yeah. consumerism, yeah. how to connect, brand, that right. sort of thing. But um, did that, didn't love it, um, and then went, always had this... this uh, really tough conversation internally between do I do entrepreneurship, which is what I love, whatever form that takes, or finance, because every, you know, right. that was sort of the predominating yes. profession amongst, so, and it was well paid and all that stuff. So right. I went to Bloomberg mm-hmm. um, and helped price credit default swaps in 2006. So you can imagine the trajectory of, of yeah. that experience. <laughs> yeah. So, That's funny. And were you, so when you eventually did, start your first company it was Coco Mama yes is that right yeah. and then was that like with Sarah uh, Granulati who's also in the industry still as well okay cool yeah. and did you um, was it like I see a, a white space which is not an expression I love but I tend to use yep. unfortunately I'm gonna go fill it or were you passionate about the like how did you were you were you an entrepreneur in search of a product or did you have a product and become an entrepreneur um, it was really neither. I was, uh, well, maybe the former. I, I was an, an aspiring entrepreneur, whatever that meant at the right. time. I wanted to start a business. Right. I went to, as part of my like, you know, divergent search between finance and entrepreneurship, I decided to go to Babson for my MBA versus mm-hmm. 
you know, uh, at Georgetown, for instance, because right. that was a very, like for me at least, a consulting or finance thing versus Business. this unknown. Yeah. So uh, got to Babson. Sarah was in my program, and it was actually her idea. She was um, a celiac, and um, I always loved food. I mm-hmm. did. I had no idea how to translate that into a business. Right. But my mom owned her little catering company. I grew up cooking right. in the kitchen. That was my love. Like yeah. I'd spend my last dollar on a good meal. Yeah. Still would. And so that I think was just happy circumstance where she was a celiac, working on a concept of how to bring ancient grains um, into a product, uh, you know, quinoa, teff, chia, amaranth um, back right. then, which they weren't right. really nearly as like popular. Um, food back then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I just linked with her and, and um, after we graduated, decided to, to both do it full And time. how did you, what were your first steps? Like what did, did you, were you like, okay, I'm going to do this and you're going to do, like how did you even yeah. divide up the, work. Yeah, her background was predominantly marketing um, uh-huh. in this space, uh, a company called Mambo Sprouts, which did a lot of couponing through Whole Foods. Um, so, you know, there was sort of a natural uh, divergence of skill set there. Um, I, we had a little incubator within Babson, uh-huh. ended up winning um, the the business plan competition. So oh, cool. uh, had a little bit of funding, right? Nice, um, which was cool. And uh, I sort of went deep into the supply chain piece. So right. went around the country in various command facilities. We mm-hmm. had some wacky stories. One of our commands, and for any entrepreneur, especially in food, like I, I always say, like our jobs are just dealing with disaster on a daily basis. Pretty much. Hopefully yeah. with relative grace. Yes. Um, but we, I got to call it like we had just done this like, and there was a retorted product, which was also not easy at the right. time. So like think Uncle Ben's rice yes. in the microwave. Got it. Um so we had like big machines that looked like submarines or the, the, re, the retorted, um, you know, uh, tanks. And we had done all this commercialization, which was really expensive yeah. for us. Got to call it 2 a.m. from the operations manager that I had just befriended. Right. And he's like, hey, Zach, you, you got to get everything out of here. And it was all the ingredients. It was basically our entire uh, yeah. amount of money. Yeah. And I was like, why? He's like, well, the FBI is everywhere <gasps> and they're going to, they're going to, confiscate everything oh, in the facility wow. turns out the like the owner was it was a older man young wife young wife had been poisoning the older man oh my gosh it, it no was way. like it was crazy, crazy. Uh, and at that point i was like all right this is gonna be a crazy ride so right. anyway we had to switch um get Co-packers. a truck out right. this this really wonderful guy helped us get a truck out that night uh, to Ohio, another facility that I had been speaking with, and sort of that that was right. just trying to get this thing um, produced. <laughs> Made, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I had um, a couple of episodes ago, I had Marco and Andrew from Brodo on. Yeah. And, you know, Marco was saying, like, it's, it's broth. It's not that complicated. Right. And yet when it, you're making broth in a pot in your restaurant, it's not that complicated. When you try to make it, you know, for, I don't know, thousands of pounds, thousands of cases a year, you know, and like in all of the, the packaging and the, you know, just the whole supply chain is just, it's, it's tough. So we're going to get into that because you actually help people with that. Okay. So you left there. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you, what I liked, and we don't have to go through each step, but I feel like there's like CEO, COO, um, more operations, a head of sales job. Like, mm-hmm. it seems like you were purposely 
taking leadership roles in all of the different sort of buckets of the system yeah. so that you could get a, a very sort of holistic picture. I mean, cause you have the kind of job that could go be like a brand manager for, you know, a CPG that's coming over from Europe or mm-hmm. whatever. Like I think of Mike Messersmith type of thing. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. you got, you got yourself educated in sales in distribution in like operations and, I guess not as much in marketing, but kind of. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I think marketing is is <laughs> in well, yes, and also I have a personal opinion that a lot of entrepreneurs like that is the vertical that they most yes. emotionally associate with. For sure, but marketing is a is like its own real vertical. Yes, that like and and so I am not classically trained right. as a marketer, right. but I have opinions. Yes, things. So, <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. I like your opinions. Yeah. Um, so did you do that purposely? You kind of walked or like. To the extent that we can sort of make these these buckets of, you know, and I, I feel like I always do it visually, mm-hmm. like getting the product made, getting the product distributed, getting the product on the shelf, telling the story yeah. of the product. Did you try to, did you purposely sort of try to get yourself really well educated in all parts of the system for a purpose or was it just kind of happening? I wish it was intentional in some way, but no, my, it, I'm very much sort of just a drunkard's walk. Like I'm, I'm all over it. Like I'll take any opportunity that looks uh, interesting and that I can learn from. Right. Um, So, you know, I think that there were certain verticals that I just was like, I had a natural inclination toward, uh, ops was not originally one of them, uh, but it was fascinating to me. Right. Um, so, and it, and it's like you alluded to before, you know, we got on air operations is incredibly important yeah. in this thing. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I did recognize that fairly early on and thought it would be prudent to, to really have a, uh, in-depth understanding of, of supply chain and commands and, yeah. and then what made you decide to start rodeo? So rodeo, after these various brand experiences, um, I just started getting fascinated with the notion of an action-based ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So in an industry where we have a 90 plus percent failure rate, could, could we have an audacious, could we be as audacious to say, you know, within, if you were able to create an ecosystem that could flip that success rate around. Mm -hmm. So if, if a brand was part of this ecosystem, yep they would have a 90 plus percent success rate. Honestly, it's kind of, I, I feel like I've said this before. I feel like this is sort of my dream. Like I, I really do because I, especially in here, I meet so many founders with like these amazing products. Um, and they haven't quite figured out the market or they haven't quite figured out, you know, getting it made or they haven't put together sort of the, the funding piece. Yeah. Um, or I meet people with like a great team, but the product needs some real tweaking mm-hmm. and they're not quite ready to make that yet. And like everything has to be so aligned because I think that 90% failure rate, like I always talk about like product market team, mm-hmm. you broke it down even further, like product, people, placement, pricing, your four P's, velocity, gross margin. Yeah. And then, you know, but I think what you're saying is is if you can get if you can break it down into each one of these things and you can maximize each one of these things my guess is that you do end up with a better success rate 
It's when people aren't looking at it this way and they're so like super focused on product, but not on team and mm-hmm. not on market and not on placement. And they're not thinking about their gross margins. Um, and so it, are, in some way, are you sort of, did you kind of create this thing to sort of holistically help a small business or an emerging business really break it down the way that you break it down and look at each individual piece of it and just maximize each piece? Yeah, I think that's one component of it. Um, you know, I think that at the time there were a lot of accelerators and incubators popping up everywhere and there yeah. still are. And a little bit that that was it was fine. Many of them are education based, which is important, but in, you know, in my experience, you know, growing brands needed people doing things, yeah. not telling them what to yes, do. And that was like the critical piece where you know, for me, consultancy is almost a bad word. I know, like, and I it, didn't know. I didn't know what the right word would be to use because people like shy away from it. But well, yeah. it, but in the context of like, I wanted to be, you know, I I love bit like the brand building, whatever that you know phrase means. I liked being in the thick of it. So how could you create something that, you know, really was an extension? of brands and and where could and so we started as just an outsource it was just me and doing outsourced ops for companies because that was seemed like a void it is also i mean in my experience when it in that first step from like a founder having an idea figuring out how to like produce something Mm -hmm. the the ops role is for most of the people i've met the first role they need to hire Mm -hmm. for like Managing that co-packer, you know, reducing all of the costs of everything, making things more efficient, really just building that system out and like figuring out how to forecast and all that. And that's usually not what the founder either is a good at or B really wants to do. Um, So you did that for a few companies. Mm -hmm. Did that for a few companies, um, started to gain some traction, Mm -hmm. um, uh, brought on a, a woman named Elena uh, Guberman who worked uh, with me at Little Duck Organics. Um, and so the two of us uh, just, you know, increasing amount of clients, started bringing on other friends that right. we had worked with. Um, who like this stuff. Who love yeah. this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Just and and, you know, operationally, that is a very specific person. Yes, for um, sure. And their brain works a little differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and And so... You're right. I think that that skill set, at least, you know, and, and it's a little different now where it's such a like a dynamic time in, in CPG. There's, I think, a lot more people yeah. who and th- those functions are becoming to crystallize a little bit more than yeah. they were. Yeah. Um, when so. you were doing that, was there someone on the on the internal team other than the founder that you were working with? Or mm-hmm. were you really like the director of operations, essentially just outsourced? Yeah, I, for some brands, we definitely were. For other brands, and again, as as Rodeo evolved, that mm-hmm. evolved too. Right. Um, as an example, when we helped uh, with Recess, um, uh-huh. which is a brand that many people, especially yep. in New York, know, um, there was a COO that we worked with and, and a little bit the, the founder, Ben. Um, right. So it's just whatever the needs are at that time, like our model is basically right. create you know, uh, identify where your pain points are. We'll write a job spec against those pain points and then we'll fill the role. Awesome. So awesome. And then, then you also added like a sales piece to it. 
which is a completely different group of people whose brains work a completely different way and yeah. have, I, I want to, after the break, we'll get into sales, but okay. um, I think, I think emerging brands underestimate the ops piece, but I think they also, it's not even that they underestimate it. They don't, they don't have any insight into what this sales thing is and reset calendars and categories and, yeah. you know, it's crazy town. So were you, how did that evolve for you? Was it just a company that was like, Oh, Hey, I need help with this. And then you started doing it. No, actually. Um, so I had done some intermittently outsourced like sales work, distributor management, that sort of work as part of just what we started to Mm -hmm. offer naturally. I also, uh, while doing rodeo, uh, joined a company called FDM for a time, which is one of the larger outsourced sales groups uh, to help uh, build infrastructure and reporting uh, within that system. Uh, I had a friend whose name was Kevin Mannering, who actually rented a desk from us at Little Duck in Brooklyn, (laughs) Uh um, 2011 or 2012. Um, Known him, he was the former VP of sales at Quinn Snacks. very close. He had branched out of FDM to start kind of a, um, a sales group focused on the data and analytics, right. um, which he and I share as uh, like, we think that is the most important uh, factor of growth yeah, moving forward. Ask uh, about that. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Kevin and I decided to sort of uh, merge, um, which was executed at the end of 2018. Got it. Um, which really, you know, brought that service right. um, as a product into Rodeo. Amazing. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to dig hardcore into uh, that everything you just said. Okay, Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lily Pool Terrace. Executive chef Sarah Flynn's unique menu includes modern dishes with global flavors with a focus on local and seasonal ingredients. I'm back with Zach D'Angelo from Rodeo CPG. Okay, so we were talking a little bit before the show I like the word ecosystem. I like the idea of like when you poke on one part of a system, something bubbles up over here and mm-hmm. you had no idea that it was going to do that. And I feel like that's exactly what a CPG thing is like. You cut one thing over here and you think it's great, but then all of a sudden, yeah. you know, your leg is bleeding. Right. So um, I feel like what we were talking about is I, I've, I've definitely brought in sort of ops and finance people. I hope enough there will be more. I've definitely brought in, you know, marketing and brand. Um, we haven't really dug into the sales part um, b- 
because it's it took me a while to wrap my head around it and i i didn't really know even the questions that i wanted to ask yeah. honestly so we're not going to talk about direct to consumer for a minute we will talk about it because obviously it's very relevant today mm-hmm. but for brands like mine that don't have a direct to consumer piece yet a lot of frozen a lot of fresh yep. brands um Let's just talk about sort of the ecosystem within sales. So there's your sales team, whether that's one person or an outsourced team. There's a broker network, presumably. Um, There are merchandisers, which is another thing. And then, yes, and then distributors, um, which are all part of sort of getting your product from where you make it onto the shelf, essentially. So can you break down a little bit if you were starting a CPG company tomorrow and you had money, mm-hmm. maybe not too much money, but you had some money and it was not direct to consumer, what would your team look like that you would build out? How would you think about all of these different pieces? Yep, that's a, a great question. Um, you know, I, if, I, if I'm starting a, a brand today, I, I, I really want it to be um, conducive toward omni-channel. Yes. So I would I would be d- uh, creating product lines specific for food service. I would uh, make it so that the product was shippable and um, high so mark. You, yes, you would not do what I did. <laughs> Which, no, and we talk about this a lot. Yeah. Like, we talk about, you know, anyone who asks me, I'm like, make it have a really long shelf life. Yep. Make it really lightweight. Make it, like, you know, have ingredients that are not expensive or esoteric you know (laughs) there are things that you know and yet also I love my product so much and I feel like I've hacked it a little bit but yes so going into so when you say omnichannel and we've gone through this but I just want to like break it down I always think of omnichannel like a pie chart Mm -hmm. so if you have one piece of the if you're only selling your product through Instagram that is not a recipe for success. You, you it could know. be. It's not one that I would want to. And and again, when you ask that question, it's like me creating a, this thing out of a yeah. science. No, and that's room, the thing, which is not what food is. No. Like, so the the passion and and creating the anomaly to what I just right. said is where innovation is for sure. Is created. I am not offended in any way. Yeah, make yeah, it yeah. clear. Like I'm just. <laughs> I'm like as as we you know as people are listening to this. I think for the most part, people are listening either like on the fence about starting something, or maybe having just started something. Also, to be clear, if you've already started something and it is refrigerated or frozen, your next product line can be shelf stable with much better margins. Yep. You know, it's you're going to figure it out as you go along. So, but going back to what you were saying, omnichannel, meaning you need to have some online, you need to have some in-store, you need to have some food service, you need to have, you know, a bunch of different things where you're getting your product to an end consumer through different channels. Uh, That's what I would want because I think that the retail environment is becoming from a margin perspective more and more difficult. Meaning and getting it into stores and having those buyers and the promotions that cost thousands of dollars. and Exactly. Right, and yeah. making money that way. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating. I mean, if you analyze 10 CPG brands, nine of them will be sort of margin neutral or margin negative through traditional distribution. Yeah. Unify, Kahi, right. whatever. So 
you, you know, that is a tough, like you need to subsist on equity capital if that's, if right. that's your margin structure. So let's break that down a little bit because I actually followed, but I just want to make sure yeah. that we break it down. One of the things we talk about on this podcast a lot is every penny counting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have someone dedicated on our, our team. We have 46 ingredients and five SKUs. Yeah. Already, cool. yeah. that's not great. It's just not. I mean, it's a lot of ingredients. So her job is basically renegotiating almost consistently every single one of those mm-hmm. ingredients, figuring out, do we need one? Can we swap one? How do we do it? All while keeping the integrity and quality of the product, um, making sure every truck that we put stuff on is maximized. You know, one of the things you were saying is that if you're not making money by actually selling your product, then you need to get money for everything that kind of comes below the line. So right. paying all your people, doing all your marketing, everything pretty much else, everything yeah. other than just making the product, mm-hmm. which is why the margins on the product are so important. Right. Right. So I think that kind of dove a little deeper in. And if, and if they're not, and if you're never going to have a profitable product, you're basically always going to be looking for capital from outsiders and diluting yourself and your ownership in the Which company. Which is all, like a lot of companies. It is a model. Have, it's a model. So like Honest Tea never, yeah. never made a dime like until... Um, it did. It, it, right. <laughs> until it did. And, yeah. and, and um, at least I, like that's the folklore of it. I mean, maybe Seth would, would call up and say it, it was different. But, but I think you and I would also both agree that the days a little bit of, you know, and I always talk about like food isn't tech. And it never will be. So applying sort of that, um, we never need, and and by the way, I think in general, there's, uh, since we work, in my opinion, there's an actual sea change where people are starting to look at profitability and they're starting to look at the business in a way that maybe they hadn't for the last several years. And that sort of, that folklore of those few companies that, spent all of their money basically on marketing, never really, you know, had a profitable product, raised a lot of money along the path, and then had a great exit, which kind of cured everything. Right. I mean, how many out of... Right. It's like you saying know, I want to write a hit song. Right. I, I do. That'd be awesome. Right. But like, I, I wouldn't unnecessarily... <laughs> do you really want to write a hit? Is that yeah, like I actually a do. dream of yeah, hers? Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. you came up with that really quickly, and that would not be an analogy I would use. Really? Right. No, I want to be a singer. Is okay, what I'm cool. Yeah. All right. Great yeah. to hear. Okay. So let's talk. What do brokers do? The, this oh, is we'll one... go back a little bit. Would you... So going back to this fictional product yeah, that yeah. you would create, aside from having Sales organization. Yes. How would you organize the sales around it? I think... I think that no one is going to sell sell the product better than the founders or those in the thing. Yeah. So, um, and I also believe that um, going to a meeting and selling that that product to a buyer, that magic, it's it's you know, the founding team should do that. Mm-hmm. And and but it's like that is one minute piece of what sales actually means. Yes. So. I would have the uh, founding team doing the actual selling. To the big uh, accounts, but not to every... Not to every, because right. that's impossible. Right. But I would have, um, you know, really, really solid, um, you know, from an infrastructural standpoint, distributor management, um, knowing when the category reviews, when the buyers are actually reviewing the category on hand, and you can outsource that. 
uh, knowing what, you know, building the models around, is this going to be profitable or not for me? What promotion should I run? So that's interesting, right? Because I was talking to an investor the other day and she was talking about um, building a P&L per mm-hmm. customer. Oh, yeah. Um, and that, breaking that down, that just means that there are some retailers that don't take any slotting fees. So yep. you know that... You know, if you can kind of make it work and go on promotion a couple times a year. And this is something like I did not know this before the Chobani incubator. Mm -hmm. I was like, we're never going on promotion. And, you know, we're going to have such a great Instagram following that we're never going to have to do a demo. Yep. I mean, that was just like the most naive that you could be. But I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. And I would say that you are doing yourself a disservice because quantitatively Mm -hmm. in-store promotion and trade is a critical tool that of very few tools that we have to get our products in the hands of consumers. Absolutely. I mean, now I'm like a demo fiend. Right. You know, um, and I had Pat Jamey on here who, um, you know, was like the demo king of Sir Kensington's. And, mm-hmm. you know, he, I mean, they did an, an they, I don't even, Huge. It, it was insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, and it was a plan and it, and it, you know, arguably worked um but you know him sort of if you're coming at it from like what is the exact roi on a demo you're never gonna get it because you're never gonna see you're not gonna sell 150 dollars worth every time you do a demo and that's how much each one costs but if you look at it as investment in sort of like getting the product into people's hands yeah and also demos like where demos work and where they don't i would never subscribe to a demo program in Ahold, right, where you're not even allowed to use your own people, right. You, there's a lack of transparency into what is sold. Yeah, um, you often have someone that is, you know, again, not. I don't want to get in trouble from from their programming, but right. like someone that doesn't isn't familiar with no. your product. So no. like, they're just hey, like try this. There, yeah, right. yeah. That's that's not, and they're expensive. Right. So they're they're again, it's it's creating this comprehensive plan, and I agree with whomever the investor was, you should have a P&L for every single account. So right. like, th- if this is X, then I can expect Y. Right. And as long as you have a plan, you know, financially speaking, um, then that's good. And you have to measure that plan because each category is different. Each right. category during each season is yeah. different. Yeah. So th- like it, it, it's, it's again, none of it's rocket science, but yeah. it's a lot of like just blocking and tackling looking back as to what worked, what didn't, if it didn't, we'll tweak it and try again. Right. And how do you evaluate? I mean, how do you evaluate if a promotion worked? Is it just on like the next month lift of velocity or, you know, is it sales during the promotion? Like what would, how would you evaluate a promotion? Great question. And again, it, it is not easy. And that's what, that's what really my passion is like, how do we fix that? Because there is such a lack of data if you're not purchasing yeah uh nielsen spins iri you which can is really expensive right? really expensive so we're you know i'd love to create a relationship with those guys that help earlier stage brands in some way where you know if, if we can do a lot if we have scan data then you right. can go back and see like exactly what you said what was my percentage lift during promo uh, what was my sustained lift after promo? Yeah. Uh, can I identify any seasonality? Uh, what price points are most impactful? 
uh, you can pull all of that information out. If you don't have it, then you have to rely on things like, you know, KE Connect and UNFI right. Clearview and, and it's case level data. Yeah. So and then, that's different. It's different because right. they like, then they can, they can purchase a bunch when it's on deal. Right. And then you, so it's very hard to extrapolate out right. of there. It's, we're trying to like build predictive algorithmic data based on that, but it's never going to be perfect. Right. So I, going through the register at the store level is what gives yeah. you the best insight. But but very few of us have like complete uh, right. visibility into that. No. I mean Whole Foods if you get into that, if you get into it, the portal, yeah, the you Whole can Foods get a lot good. of really good stuff. Yep. I mean so far that's all we actually have and can use. So it's, Yep, Whole it's Foods great. is great. Uh, Wegmans has a great portal. Kroger has a portal called Market 6 um, that you can buy pretty inexpensively. So there are accounts with portals, but it's right. just not ever it's not the full landscape, right. so it's that does yeah. require, you know. Yep. Okay, so you have your founder selling, and then you have a system where you're managing the distributor. Let's talk about managing the distributor. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of us start off with regional distributors. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're too small for, I mean, even when we started, the next program was not even really up and running. And right. um, how, A, what does managing a distributor look like? B, what do you have to manage? And like, what are a couple of really good helpful hints? Yeah, so you alluded to Dear UNFI. So that was yes. a critical article I wrote that just um, sort of uh, explained all the challenges that early stage and even non-early stage brands were having with some of these big distributors. And what resulted of that was that, you know, I got a call from Steve Spinner that, the next day calling me to Rhode Island, which was good. Scary? Was a little. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, <laughs> but, so, yeah, but, I mean, but good. But right. good. Um, <laughs> I got to the office, and, and since then, we've built a really strategic relationship with UNFI. Because understand, and I tried to articulate this in the article, it's not easy. No. This is not a, this is not a bunch of criminals. No, not like at all. And I think that I think taking the, the us and them and the antagonism out of it and actually looking at whether it's the grocery store who has such thin margins that, yeah, they need to charge you to do a promo because it's labor putting on those yellow tags. Or it's the distributors who, I mean, the rules and the laws around when a truck driver can drive has sure. completely changed, and it's expensive. So, yes. Or the negotiation that, that KE and Unified do to win the big business. Like, they're they're not making money on mm -hmm. a cost plus six or seven. Right. Like, they're just not. So, you know, these are, well, Unify is a public company. So, you know, you have to report earnings. So I get all of that. Yep. The problem is is that the result is the man it's becoming harder to create awesome products and put it in grocery stores yes. and that bothers me. Yeah. So, you know, it's a systemic issue which is in my mind opportunistic. So, obviously there will be companies coming out and seizing billion dollar opportunities to get products more efficiently distributed to right. distributed and more transparently so that manufacturers have the power to promote right. when they want to promote. And Fresh has been very hard. I feel like there are a bunch coming out of the gate totally. that are really good at shelf stable. I haven't met anyone yet that's like Agreed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, cold chain distribution is way harder. Yeah. It's like I've seen, I just saw there was a Schwann's, uh, I'm forgetting what, Cygnus, I think it's called, 
was at Nosh, and they were um, they're tr- trying to tackle pick and pack frozen, mm-hmm. pro- but it's expensive. Yeah. So it only works with certain products. Right. Like if your product has, you know, it's a seventy dollar product. Yep. Then you know the shipping cost probably could be integrated into that margin. Right. So it it, it will take time, and I don't even know like. You know, if we're talking about sustainability, if if it makes sense at scale to be shipping frozen products all over the place, like within one day, right. like I, I don't know, I have some personal qualms about that too. Yeah. Um, so sort of TBD, um, right. but there's certainly a lot of innovation that will happen on that side as well. And then, I mean, is there anything that you need that you would just advise quick and dirty an emerging brand to look out for? Whether it's like, yes, yeah, so another reason you know, uh, we started rodeo was there are a lot of unfortunately sort of fly by the night players in this industry, and because there's so many new brands, there's a lot of brands being taken advantage of, and that's really important, you know, to yeah. me. Um, so just simple things to look out for. I am a very strong believer in anyone that presents you with like long-term contracts that are hard to get out of, huge red flag to me. Mm-hmm. You know, we, I, if, if a relationship is not working, one should never be stuck in that relationship. Yep. Um, and relationships don't work in this industry for all sorts of reasons. Timing, size, personality. Yeah, it, it doesn't yeah. matter. If, if it works, you know, and if it doesn't work, you know. Um, there are very simple things, case pack sizes. So if you are a fresh company and or let's say a yogurt company and your case pack is 12, yep. then you can do the back of the napkin math and realize that your product, if it has a shelf life of 21 to 30 days, has to sell right. three or four units per store per scoop per week right. or half of your product will go to right. spoilage. So very so so make your make your case back smaller. Yeah, in that case. Right. Yeah. 100%. So GS1 UPCs, we see this all the time despite it being a relatively low sort of hanging fruit mm-hmm. piece. GS1 UPCs are ones that you buy from the GS1 website. Yes. It's like $1000 for 100 SKUs or something yep. like that. A lot of people will buy recycled UPCs that are oh, um, interesting. you can buy for like 11.99 or something and if you're a scrappy entrepreneur you you do that. You can't use those in like Kroger and Whole Foods. Right. You can't Don't use... buy recycled UPCs. Yep. Wow, that is such a good little easy one. gritty easy one. Easy yeah. one. Margin requirements. So, you know, in distribution, it's easy. If it if if your product costs a dollar to make all in packaging, mm-hmm. ca- all that stuff. Yep. Well, let's break that down a little okay. bit because it's, it's the actual ingredients of the product. Yep. It's the labor, which is the tolling, essentially, if yep. you're going to a co-man. If you are still making the product yourself and you haven't gone to a co-manufacturer, you do have to put in some labor, labor. number. And overhead, allocated you, you overhead. you got to figure that out, yep. right? So that's the tolling, the packaging, warehouse. Yeah, freight in. Freight in. Which, so uh, freight, the freight cost of getting your ingredients there if you're purchasing right. them. Right. Uh, that's integrated. And is there anything else in a cog? Uh, well, <laughs> some people, <laughs> in a cog, yeah. Um it's uh, so there's like gap compliant things where you have to do like, uh, if, but for me, the cogs is everything you just described, and some people use freight out as well, um, right? Which would be the, me taking my case and shipping it to the the warehouse. Exactly. Right. If you have a distribution warehouse right. from co-packer to warehouse, right? Okay, and then but a lot of times if you're early, I feel like UNFI or 
okay, will he pick pickups. up. Yeah, and you can choose, like, again, we can have a whole nother podcast on, on the logistics yeah. of things. And people sometimes choose to be picked up, delivered, right. and, you, and that's a constant, like, sort right. of evolution based on where you're selling. Yeah, and how much freight costs exactly. for where you're, okay. So that's fun. So, <laughs> so brokers, uh-huh. how do they play into all of this? I didn't even know. I mean, honestly, it's amazing that we've gotten this far. Yeah. I really, I'm like sort of amazed that we've come this far. Now, looking back on like a year ago being like, huh? Well, we're so, all yeah. learning. So I, I you, right. would, you should never feel. Uh, I mean, it, it, thank goodness yeah. that. I mean, and that's honestly, I keep going back to like why I even do this podcast because like I have people that I can ask. Mm-hmm. There's so many people that are starting these things that don't have people that they can ask. Yeah. And if we can just save someone a couple of months and some heartache and some, totally. you know, and some I always, money. I always say that everyone within Rodeo, our advice is for free. So, you that's know, awesome. uh, so anytime anyone wants to give us a, uh, ask a question, give us you a call. You might get 50,000 That's fine. Calls. That's fine. It's, it honestly is because the, the one good, the, not the one, I shouldn't say that. Zach's cell of, phone number yeah, for all of you guys. Is. Yeah. Uh, but the great thing about CPG is, is for the most part, people are really, really they're yeah. humble. They want to help people. Yeah. They're open. Uh, that was not the case, um, you know, in finance, right. in the finance yes. world. So that was a, breath of fresh air. I also it's I mean I think it's just the case in food in general like my background is hospitality and yep. food and and I've just never been in an, I mean people come from fashion and they're like traumatized right. you know I I've had the opposite experience so again going back the di- what's the difference between so I think we'll we'll break it down this way you said selling the product there's so much more to it than yes. just like hi you like my product? Great. Getting on shelf for me is the easiest part of all this. Yes. The magic is getting it off the shelf, getting consumers to repeat right. purchase. And there is a science and an art to that. Um, and how and does that important. play into all the different players? Like how do, yeah, how do it, all the different players work in uh, that? Again, this is a, a place where I could definitely get in trouble. But, you know, my point of view is so uh, 10 second history, uh, you know, we, 20 years ago, the distributors had big selling teams. You would get into the distributor and the distributor would treat you like a customer. Right. And so they were proud to sell your product. Their street teams would go out there. The margins became uh, less and less uh, scalable. As companies grew, consolidation happened. Those sales teams all got let go. Mm-hmm. So there weren't all, all those big distributors now fundamentally are moving goods around. So even though they have an SRM who's supposed to be your, you know, not sales, but they are responsible for your your the fluidity of your business. They're not responsible for putting it anywhere, right? Um, from a sales perspective, got it. So that's why the broker network emerged, right? And the broker network again, sort of same thing was as you know retailers like so the broker i i would imagine started into small regional brokers that knew the accounts they had personal relationships right. they were going into these mom and pops um but then as the the fundamental business part of brokerages and how they grow you know these brokers started getting hundreds and hundreds of brands and mm-hmm. and um they started acquiring a bunch of regionals but right. all those regionals it was hard to make that whole thing cohesive so for me the broker network is you know will require a lot of innovation and change for it to continue to play a substantial role in our industry um right. and i think that'll be a huge challenge because it is really hard to cover 
hundreds and hundreds of stores for hundreds and hundreds of, of brands. brands. It's yeah. I mean, is it possible that it's just this ongoing, it's almost like nature in the sense that, you know, you have like the little fish and then the little fish get eaten by the bigger fish mm-hmm. and then the bigger fish. And, and your goal is like an emerging brand is to find someone who really loves your brand, someone who's going to really do their best. They're selective. They don't just take anyone on. And then at some point, they're going to take on too many brands. And you're by that time, hopefully going to be bigger. So you don't need that kind of like handholding. I mean, is it possible that it just is this way? Well, I don't think you you small brands get handholding at all. I think they get the perception of handholding. But at the end of the day, for many of these groups, you know, 10 companies or whatever, uh, account for you know the eighty twenty thing like and right. so they just don't have the the human man hours to do the work that would be needed for a small brand now that doesn't mean they're they're it's complete obsolescence right there I I think it you know for me things like the notion of loyalty kind of goes out of it and there was yeah. this like inherent thing like. I, I repped you when you were little, so you should be loyal. Mm-hmm. For me, that's not a thing. Like right. it's we need to be very quantitative about this. And there are many brokers out there that are wonderful in specific regions and right. can uh, reach out and make connections to retailers. I think that all these models need to evolve so that it is more performance based or more transparent right. or more um, data oriented. When do you know as an emerging brand? You know, I mean, I'm assuming people are going to listen to this and be like, I don't need a broker. Well, in that case, I don't want a broker. But on the other hand, hiring that internally is is not feasible because no. you, you can't build that team in-house. What, what would you do? Yeah, so there are some accounts that you do not need a broker for. Yeah, Whole Foods and and Whole Foods has, has become one 100%. of them. Which was tough because Whole Foods, that revenue represented a, a huge portion of brokerage revenue yeah. historically. Yeah. Uh, perfect consumer, high velocity, opened up DCs, predominantly yeah. UNFI in this case. Yeah. So um, that's a that's a challenge on their end. Uh, you know, brands like the Fresh Market or retailers like mm-hmm. the Fresh Market. I was just on a call with uh, a senior Whole, uh, Walmart buyer a couple weeks ago, and he was like, "How do we get? Like, we are trying to actively." remove the broker layer between our engagements with brands because it's margin that we can use for marketing efforts right and it's it's margin that brands can use to be successful so i again i don't i I think that there is for those that are able to innovate and figure out ways to create real quantifiable value then it will be fine like and again the you had said i think before um we hopped on was merchandisers Mm-hmm. That's a new thing. Like yeah. the tech-based merchandisers, Dirty Hands, Base Makers, right. Survey.com. That is new. In response, your Pinata demo like is actually a technology layer. Yeah. But um it's those th- there is no silver bullet here and it's just having the wherewithal to to patchwork the right. thing together to get you to the point where and and it always changes. Right. It's not a stagnant thing. And that yeah, I mean, in our case, you know, I, we, you know, we're gangbusters in Whole Foods Northeast yep. and super excited to be in the fresh market and doing well, but not doing as well as we know we could be. Yep. And so I need boots on the ground. I need people making sure those pouches look good. I need people doing demos. I need someone who has a connection to the buyer mm-hmm. because once you're in, it's it's very hard to, to get 
a, a relationship. And so you try, you know, you try your UNFI person and you, you try, you know, to, to like, we don't know. Sometimes it's just hard to get into that buyer and into the store. And there are all these different people sort of out there who can be boots on the ground or who have relationships set already so that someone is minding the baby. Yep. It's just, it feels like your baby's out in the world and no one's minding it. It's really hard. And yeah. it's it's a fight. And you got to be prepared for the fight. And it is still relationship driven. If you can build advocacy within, you know, those grocery stores, right. things can happen. Definitely. And, um, you know, it will continue to be difficult. I mean, Kroger, for instance, recently... You, you even if you plan a deal, it doesn't mean that the deal is going to be placed because right. they only do deals for high volume turning products. Interesting. So what a chicken and the egg thing for right. a, an early stage brand. They're like, yeah. well, I'm trying to be a, a right. So you yeah, know, or you want to do demos, but they cost five hundred dollars right. and they only use their in house people, and you're like, I I'm not going to do that. Right. Like my my product takes too much nuance you know which again is something you wouldn't you would not start <laughs> <laughs> but but now that you have yes. it it is it and it's and it's a delicious product yeah. and it, it does and use working. high quality yeah. ingredients and all those things right. that that i think that despite any any like the quantitative side of my being the other side is if you invest in an amazing product, mm-hmm. then you will have different choices than someone who hasn't. Yeah. Look at like Truff. Yeah. Like that is a wildly expensive, yes. high quality ingredient yep. thing. And they're doing it a very different way because people love that product. Yes. And yep. so I think that is that is fundamental. There is a, a significant piece of art in our industry yep. and that can't be ignored either. And also, I mean, I think going to your point... Not every brand is meant for grocery store distribution. You can build totally. an amazing food brand that's in specialty or direct and has a little bit of distribution in some other places. Gifting business. Totally. There's all sorts of like this underbelly yep. of of business that you can create. Not um, just on the shelves of Kroger. Like there is, yep. yeah, there is a, a Winco is is a is a brand a retailer that not a lot of people pay a ton of attention mm-hmm. to, but they write huge orders and it's like pallet in pallet. Right. out or it's like more logistics than it is sales right. and that is a piece of of cpg that really fascinates yeah. me is this like underbelly yeah of logistics food service really fascinates food services me. i find it fascinating yeah all right we are definitely over time and out of time <laughs> but um how do people reach you you said advice was free but I'm, yeah zachary at rodeo cpg.com and i honestly will give my cell phone out uh, <laughs> no don't to, to, well, i won't hear but I, <laughs> if you email me i will yeah. um i think what we've done right is we have a group of people that are really determined uh to make our brands work and they care a lot about everybody's business and and they're all humble and and in my opinion wonderful people so Amazing. yeah Anything will you be at do. expo west Expo West, Fancy. Yeah, we All do. We make the circuit. Right. Yeah. So y'all pop by? Yeah, I would love okay, to. Okay, fun. All right. Um, thank you for listening. Matt, engineer extraordinaire, as always. Um, and stay tuned for another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.